Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion Science Radio. Sit back and relax while we talk about hormones and beef and the conflict between farming and fracking. But first up, let's have some news with Patrick Ruby. A fruit fly bacterium might help stop an epidemic from NewScientist.com. The Wolbachia species of bacterium is being used to fight dengue fever. This is a species of bacteria that normally lives in the fruit fly Drosophila. The research into this biological defence is being conducted by Scott O'Neill and his team of scientists from Monash University, Melbourne. Dengue fever is caused by a virus which is spread by mosquito bites. It typically causes high fever, headache, rash and bone pain that can last up to seven days. Severe infections can lead to rupture of blood vessels, internal bleeding, shock and death. The disease is found in tropical regions and affects up to 100 million people each year, killing 40,000 people a year. The fruit fly bacteria can infect the mosquitoes carrying dengue viruses, preventing them from carrying the viruses and also killing the mosquitoes. The Australian research team infected a group of host mosquitoes from the species Aedes aegypti with a protective bacteria. They released a test group into two outdoor enclosures in northern Queensland. After successfully infecting the mosquito populations in these groups, they released a further 300,000 mosquitoes infected with the protective bacteria into two northern Queensland towns. After four months, 100% of the mosquitoes in one of the towns contain the protective bacteria, and 90% in the other town. The scientists hope to test it in dengue fever areas in Southeast Asia and Brazil, and hope it can help combat the disease. The research has been published in the latest edition of Nature. So what about dengue fever? 100 million people each year is a lot of people to be infected by this um, disease found mainly in the tropics um, and this sort of research is is being developed in Australia but it's geared more to helping populations in Southeast Asia and Central America who are the ones that are most susceptible because of their um, tropical climates. I guess I just wonder about the ethics of, of the research. I mean I think it's hilarious that they mm. just <laughs> released all of these mosquitoes in Queensland. It's biological Did the people warfare. Know? Like yeah, the people do know, and the, the report did stress that one of the safety parameters they were looking at is how far the new bacteria spread, how far it could be detected, and they found one case which had spread beyond the area limits of the town. So it had been fairly well contained I would just the specific wonder, regions. I would just wonder how long those effects would last 
based on how short the mosquito's lifespan is? Like, would yeah. it last through seasonal variations? Or That's the thing. They found that there was an actual reduction in um, retention of the bacteria because of mingling with other... What they thought was because of mingling with other native wild populations. So the testing was actually done during um, a dry season in the tropical north, which means that other populations from outside the town have come in and they've mixed with the local population of mosquito and therefore um, after about four months the total number of um, mosquito vectors with the bacteria in them had actually reduced because they'd been dilute, diluted by migrating populations. Um, but from the preliminary test what they've found is that the um, the actual initial infection is retained re reasonably well and they haven't seen any resistance that I can speak of yet that's developed. And it's been passed on through generations. They looked at about five or six generations of mosquitoes and there was basically 100% penetrance down right. the lines. And in the areas that we're talking about implementing this bacteria, there wouldn't be a season without mosquitoes. That's true, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right. I actually know a few people who've had dengue fever. Yeah. Um, and apparently the, the real risk comes with getting a different type of dengue fever. So if you've had it once, you'll normally just get the sort of the normal um, viral illness of muscle pains and aches, um, that kind of stuff. But if you get it a second time with a different type of dengue, you're more likely to get the hemorrhagic type of virus, which is what mm. kills people, and you can get dengue shock from that as well. So people I know who've had dengue before definitely sleep in mosquito nets when they're up in the tropics. And finally... One day your shoes might power your iPhone, in a story from NewScientist.com. The energy from walking could be used to power handheld electrical devices and help overcome the need for batteries. This concept has been developed by Tom Krupenkin and J. Ashley Taylor from the University of Wisconsin and the company InStep NanoPower. It uses a concept known as reverse electro-wetting. Droplets of microscopic conductive fluid are placed inside a thin dielectric film. When the droplets remain in contact with the film, no current is generated. But when a shear or pressure force is applied to the system, the droplets and film move over each other and generate an electric current. These setups can be embedded into the soles of shoes and convert the vibration energy generated from walking climbing stairs and riding in vehicles into electrical energy to power mobile devices. The electrical energy could be transmitted from shoes to devices via radio waves or simply by a power cord. The advantages with this system, according to the study authors, are that it can convert a variety of mechanical vibrations into electrical energy. It also generates a high power density it can create a large variety of voltages and currents for different devices and can help reduce waste created by used batteries. A laboratory prototype has been made and a second is being constructed to embed in a shoe. The proposal was published in Nature Communications. Uh, so what do you think about that? Would you buy a pair of shoes that charge your phone? The iPhone, considering the battery life, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I've been having that problem too, actually. My battery life goes down way too quickly. But then again, I do spend a lot of time online on my phone, so that could be the factor. I'd just be afraid that I'd be so lazy that I couldn't even charge a phone. That would be 
humiliating. <laughs> it could be a really is, good incentive to get people to exercise. It's not just walking, though. I mean, it is a good incentive to get people walking, but it's actually the vibrations from your car that it picks up and converts to energy as well. Right. So you could be sitting in your car driving to work with your foot on the gas pedal um, or the accelerator, as we say in Australia, and the, the actual vibrations coming through would still be converted into electrical energy to, to power your phone. So well, that would be that. the opposite of incentive for exercise. Well, you could use it either way. I mean, they want, they, they want to create a lot of variety here so that the shoes themselves, no matter what you're doing, are going to generate the power for you. So do you think one day, like, really active people will be hooked up to the grid and provide energy to the rest of us? Could be, on a bunch of treadmills yeah. in front of the power lines. I don't know. It's a bit of an odd image to think Isn't of, it? really. Yeah. I'd love it if gyms were doubled over as, you know, huge power stations. It'd be great. You could be paid to exercise. Yeah. It'd be great, actually, yeah. But I, hmm. I wonder how many people you'd actually get to do it. The rolling boulder crashing down the mountain. That's kinetic energy. Kinetic. The boulder sitting high up on the mountain. That's potential energy. Potential. Energy in motion is kinetic. Energy that's waiting is potential. But whether it's kinetic or potential, both of them are energy. Olay! You stretch a rubber band and then release it. That's kinetic energy. Kinetic. You stretch a rubber band and then you hold it. That's potential energy. Potential. Energy in motion is kinetic. Energy that's waiting is potential. But whether it's kinetic So we thought it'd be interesting to have a bit of a panel discussion on diffusion this week about the process known as coal seam gas mining. The reason this is topical at the moment is that last week, the Greens proposed a legislation that would allow farmers the right to deny coal seam gas companies to access their agricultural land. This is called the Landowner's Right to Refuse Coal Seam Gas Bill of 2011. Current law in Australia dictates that landowners own the topsoil and the ground surface, but not the subsoil and the mineral reserves below. So mining companies can actually enter a property and drill if they have planning approval. Last month, the New South Wales government announced a state parliamentary inquiry into the new industry of coal seam gas mining. Current proposed areas of mining include St. Peter's and Sydney. And at the moment, coal seam gas actually supplies a third of the gas supply on the east coast of Australia. So I don't actually know that much about coal seam gas mining, and I thought it would be interested to talk about it, or at least do a little bit of research. And joining me in the studio this week are Patrick Ruby and Martin Ficini. Thanks, Vic. Yeah, I had a few questions about it myself. Um, as we all know, there's, there's plenty of coal in New South Wales, and um, one of the ways that they're trying to extract uh, more natural gas or methane from um, the already existing coal seams is by pumping a lot of water in there and then using what's called hydraulic fracturing to break open the uh, deposits and then withdraw 
the gases that are trapped in, in there. And it's become quite a hot button issue with uh, the documentary Gaslands and uh, a recent uh, Four Corners uh, uh, documentary about it on in Queensland and ABC. So there's a lot of questions to be answered. Uh, and I'm not so sure I have a, a full understanding of it myself. Patrick, what do you what do you what do you know about this? Uh, I I think my knowledge is probably even worse than yours, Martin. I think yours is is fairly good in comparison. All I really know about the whole um, um, issue with uh, mining the gas is the fact that there was a big uproar because of the deposits they found in St Peter's, and there was a lot of concern over what the possible health implications would be of actually having a mining operation for this resource in a fairly heavily populated area. Mm, yeah. I saw the uh, the Four Corners episode, and they show a few uh, a few wells that were drilled um, up in southern Queensland, that were, and the wells they show were, were done quite poorly. And so you can clearly see the pools of water around the wells are bubbling uh, with natural gas. And so how is it that they actually... Um, how is it they're actually able to mine this gas? I'm not f- fully familiar with the process that's involved. So what they do is they bring a drilling rig onto the site and they drill down to uh, as deep as they need to go, sometimes uh, thousands of meters, sometimes not nearly as deep. And uh, what they do then is once they're in the, the, the layer, the deposit that they want to be in, they will um, pump in at high pressures uh, a lot of water. And that will create really small fractures in the deposit, which then gives a way for the gas to be uh, released from it. So as soon as they've created the fractures, they need to pump in uh, sand that keeps the fractures open, and it sort of gives them different ways of extracting gas through what is actually quite an impermeable um, substrate. Is this because that the the cracks can actually close up again if they don't pump the sand in? Yeah, so the the sand is is one of the most important parts of it. If they didn't pump the sand in, it, it would just collapse in on itself because it's, it's underground, it's under high pressure. So they keep it open with the sand. And then there's lots of controversy as well with a whole slew of toxic chemicals that are pumped in with with this in, in a whole bunch of other uh, forms, whether it's just a part of drilling itself or if it has some function of protecting the uh, the parts that are underground. Uh, and that's where a lot of the health concerns are coming from, is from these these other chemicals that are in there with it. Oh, so what sort of chemicals are we talking about here? Well, the documentary Gasland has has a list of uh, like 500 chemicals, they say. 500? Yeah, wow. uh, that are used. But uh, I, I believe because of a lot of the controversy generated, uh, a lot of the companies now have to disclose exactly which chemicals they're using. Uh-huh. Um, but these chemicals, it's it's kind of just like you could, you could read uh, the back of a tin of toothpaste and scare yourself with the names of some of the things that are in there. And the same goes for those chemicals. But there's definitely some known carcinogens. Um, there's some toxic chemicals, there's some heavy metals, mm. uh, and those sorts of things have been detected up at ground level as well. But, but why are we even worried about these chemicals in the first place? I mean, can they end up in our systems? Well, the idea is that would be we'd be um, we'd be getting them, but it might not be directly because it's coming up the well. It would be because it's contaminating the groundwater around it, and um, a lot of the a lot of the concern is about the the massive. Um, great artesian uh, water source in in, in eastern australia um, and potential contamination of it and that's where a lot of the concern comes from is is are these chemicals that are pumped into the ground either going to be pulled back up and about half of the water that gets pumped down does get pulled back up and put into storage tanks which can then seep into the groundwater and then in, in another issue is does the process of fracturing the the way well underground create uh, sort of 
channels for the, that contaminated water to then seep up into our groundwater sources. And uh, I think the coal seams in New South Wales are actually quite shallow compared to the ones they talk about in the documentary Gasland. So there'd be some real concern about contaminating the groundwater that way. Mm. And the groundwater for the eastern seaboard, at least, is a major, major supply of our water. I remember... Um, watching, I think it was on Q&A a a couple of weeks back, it was Malcolm Turnbull actually who was advocating for greater care of uh, groundwater as a resource because of our high dependency on it. Right, I mean this is a country that is not unfamiliar with drought and we're discussing a technology that could potentially... the driest continent in the world, isn't it? Yeah, well the Great Artesian Basin covers about 23% of the uh, surface area, like not covers, it's underneath, but yeah. that's how big it is, and it contains about 65,000 cubic kilometers of water, so it's a massive, massive water source for a country that's desperately dependent on its own water, and p- in parts of inland New South Wales and Queensland, it's really the only source of water, so if we do anything that could potentially damage it, uh, it could be absolutely uh, catastrophic, so it, it makes it makes sense to have sort of a moratorium before we can figure out the, the consequences of this kind of drilling. Right, and and with the used up water, the produced water, as the industry calls it, what are the methods that we have to clean it up? Well, um, apart from just leaving it in in the holding tanks um, in Gasland, they show you how they sort of spray it up into the air to to help it evaporate. But whether or not that's just going to turn uh, turn the chemicals that were dissolved in the water uh, into aerosol particles that you could breathe in, or it's just going to concentrate the water that's left over and leave you with a sludgy, contaminated mess of a pool, uh, I'm not too sure about. But either not neither uh, uh, possibility sounds too appetizing for me. No, it doesn't sound very appetizing for me either. Yeah. And there's one final point. So I was a bit confused by the environmental impact. I, I understood that methane was actually better if, if burnt for the environment than coal. But unburnt methane is 20 times worse than carbon dioxide. So there's also the risk of these wells leaking methane without, without being, it being flared off and producing a huge environmental impact on the long term. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that natural gas is a, is a much cleaner gas or source of energy than coal and other, other fossil fuels. But uh, how much, how much uh, you know, what's the carbon footprint that goes into getting it out of the ground in the first place and how much are we losing out of the wells? It's really, it leaves it to be determined. But one of my uh, problems with the documentary Gasland is that, you know, natural gas needs to be a prominent source of our energy in the future if we're going to reduce our carbon footprint print from things like coal and it, it's it doesn't sort of answer the question of is are the problems that they've uncovered a result of of dodgy um, processes or are they intrinsic to the development of natural gas because I'd like to know can we responsibly drill for this and uh, capture it with this new technology um, because we need to we need to have other solutions that get us down the down the path to, towards more renewables but we're certainly not going to be able to transfer into solar and wind right away, and natural gas seems like a good stepping stone. It's just a matter of whether we can do it responsibly. It's extraordinary the amount of natural gas there is in the USA and in Canada and in Australia. It would be very valuable if we could harness it. Absolutely, and these new techniques are are sort of vastly expanding the available reserves of energy that, that they have. And um, I mean, it, it's, it, it needs to be developed, but it needs to be developed responsibly, just like anything with proper oversight. So it's, it's reasonable to me to have a sort of a short-term uh, stopping of, of the process so we can look back on it uh, with some evidence and some good science. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion is recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network.
a major supermarket chain is promoting its beef as now containing no added hormones. These hormonal growth promotants, or HGPs, are used in Australia by some beef producers and have been for years. How do they work, and why are they used? To find out, Bridget Mullane spoke to Dr. Ian Lean, Managing Director of the research group SBS Cybus. What are hormonal growth promotants, and how do you get them into the animals? Hormonal growth promotants are naturally occurring substances that are used to stimulate growth promotion in cattle. So they include products that are very similar to the normal hormones in the body and some that mimic the hormonal action of hormones that occur in the body. They're put in an implant that's put into the ear of the animal. What exactly do they do that would allow an animal to put on extra body mass for a given amount of feed? What they do is they stimulate a partitioning of nutrients towards muscle mass. And so what happens is that the animal more efficiently gains weight because it's more efficient to gain muscle mass than it is to gain fat. And they also stimulate the animals to eat a little bit more in some cases or in some other cases they actually control their appetite and the animals still make a more efficient use of the feed because of gaining muscle mass rather than fat. Now, if an animal starting at the same size had the same food and didn't get those hormones, what would happen to the energy that didn't get more efficiently converted? There's a couple of things that may happen. The first is that it may be that energy may be simply burnt and oxidised. And the other thing that may happen is it may tend to fatten more. And fattening is a less efficient process than gaining muscle. So is this why the non-hormone meat would be more marbled and the hormone meat would be more dense? Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, with the animals that have the hormones, are there any other effects on the body? The main effects that are on the body is that they tend to grow a leaner carcass. The other effect on the body is that, and this is particularly important in terms of animal well-being, is that if they're treated during, say, the wet period in the north in Australia, these animals are able to retain body condition over a longer period in the dry, and that's a beneficial source of reserves for them to draw on under conditions when things are relatively adverse. Are there some breeds of cattle that would naturally have more hormones and would naturally put on more weight? Could you do this by choosing the right breeds rather than adding hormones? There's certainly certain breeds that have a much larger body frame and gain a lot more protein. The complexity comes around the maintenance of females in that line, so that if you've got a much bigger female, then you've got to supply her constantly with more maintenance, and therefore you increase the cost of maintenance in the system. This is probably best exemplified by European breeds of cattle, which are very large, but of course are not widely used across Australia except in cross-breeding programs because the costs of maintenance of the dams are so high. Are these hormones used only in feedlots, or could they be used in animals eating grass? very much so. They're used in both grass-fed and in cattle-fed in feedlots. And in fact, one of the major uses is in northern Australia, where these animals range free, of course, and the majority of cattle in Australia are in the north, in the Kimberleys and in Queensland and in the Northern Territory. And it's these animals that benefit from the treatments of HGPs before the wet season so that they can gain more weight over the wet season and carry more weight over the dry season allowing them to reach either premium markets or retain that body weight to allow them to get through the dry period in better order. If, for example, this is hypothetical, an animal got these hormones, 
but then it didn't get enough food to put on weight, it just got enough food to, to live. Would the hormones have any effect? That's an interesting question. Some of the hormones do have an effect. Reality is that the animals perform best with the hormones when they're gaining weight. So the hormones are at most advantage when the animals are in a positive weight gain phase. Now I know that people aren't your specialty, but do you think these factors have any relevance in humans? You know how some people say they gain weight and they don't eat much? Could they just have lots of hormones? That's an interesting question, and as you said, it's not my area. I think that the key thing is that we do have a lot more variation in the human population in size, because obviously we're not selected for food purposes, or at least I hope not. Um, and so what we have is uh, a lot more variation, and undoubtedly some of that is expressed in difference in hormonal profiles between humans with different weight gain attributes. What else can you tell me about the hormones and their use in our food? Well, I think the, the most important point to stress really is that um, the use of the hormones in our food chain has been reviewed by so many august organisations, including the regulators in Australia, the Food and Drug Administration in the US, FAO, WHO, European Parliament, and in every case, uh, they've all concluded that these are very safe to have in our food chain, and I think that's one of the most important messages I can give you. And that was Bridget Mullane speaking to Dr. Ian Lean about hormones and beef. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion Science Radio. Contributing to the program were Patrick Ruby, Bridget Mullane, and Martin Ficini. Diffusion is recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast us on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Email your feedback and sign stories at diffusion at 2SER.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2SER.com. This week, Diffusion has been hosted, panelled, and produced by me, Victoria Bond, in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs>